Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Lally Katz is one of Australia's most intriguing playwrights. She is also one of the country's most performed playwrights. A graduate of the University of Melbourne, Lally also studied playwriting at London's Royal Court Theatre. Her plays include Frankenstein, The Black Swan of Trespass, The Estedford, Criminology, and Goodbye New York, Goodbye Heart. Her 2009 play, Goodbye Vaudeville, Charlie Mudd, received the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. A Gollum Story won the same award in 2012. Other awards include several Green Room and Melbourne Fringe Awards, as well as a New York International Fringe Festival Producers' Choice Award. The play we're here to talk about today, Neighbourhood Watch, was one of the standouts of Belvoir's 2011 season. It is currently playing at the Melbourne Theatre Company as part of their 2014 season, and was recently added to the VCE list for drama and theatre studies. Meet Anna, a battle-hardened Hungarian-Australian veteran of the 20th century. Catherine is her neighbour, 20-something and waiting for a better world. Can their unlikely friendship outlive the colossal forces of history, the inevitability of death, and a trip to the mall to see Mamma Mia? Neighbourhood Watch is a glorious comedy about hope, death, and pets. It's a classic odd couple story. Opposites attract, and from each other, they gain a new understanding. But as the domestic crises in Neighbourhood Watch begin to accumulate, the play takes on a sense of enormity in the midst of the ordinary. Lally, welcome to Not In Print. Oh, thanks for having me, Toby. I've been quite excited about it. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Neighbourhood Watch really blurs the line between reality and fiction. And I think before we start leaping into that fiction, I want to lay the groundwork for truth that you used as a foundation for the tale. Uh So let's start with a quote from your writer's note. And it comes from the Belvoir Productions program from 2011. You said... One morning, I went out onto the street to see if the world looked more hopeful. Standing out there in my pyjamas, I heard a voice call across the road, You girl, come on my gate! And there was Anna. Within moments, she was telling me in her deep Hungarian accent about her story. The next two years, I spent constantly with Anna. Often seven days a week, all day and into the night, we would talk. We shared everything together. She showed me her memories and the world. I asked her advice on men. She weighed me. I washed her dog. We went on errands together. We talked constantly on the phone. Her memories became more real than my present, but through it, she led me to becoming the adult woman that I was meant to be. Tell me how she did that. Well, I guess at the time that I wrote that too, I was like, yeah, I'm changed for the better. But now I kind of go, wait a minute, Anna. (laughs) There were some things that, that it's funny, like at that time I was like, everything Anna tells me is right. (laughs) And now I look back and I think a lot of it's kind of, contradictory advice but but I mean she certainly she certainly showed me a world that I hadn't seen before that hadn't been visible to me the world of the past like I felt like I saw 
hungry in World War Two. I felt like I saw her moving to Australia, like when she was in her early 30s. I felt like I saw her life as an immigrant in, in Australia. And also I felt like I got to see her modern sort of fables, like about doctors and Safeway or Woolworths. Or, you know, like I was given access, I guess, to this other brain. Like this other brain kind of got poured into mine. And she did, you know, she was always telling me, don't be so trusty. And my nature is to be trusty and her nature is to be very <laughs> distrustful <laughs> and by the end i can i can understand why she's distrustful and of course it has to do with her growing up during world war Two. and i think in a way her distrust led to her survival but for me i i, I kind of have only mainly only been shown goodness and love in the world so i can't help but be trusting even if sometimes it's disappointing to me so tell me how the story came to be on stage well, the story came to be on stage because that was the reason that I'd ever began to live it in the first place. So it was this kind of really meta theatrical thing where I went over to meet Anna because I was looking for a part to write for Robin Nevin. And when I met Anna on the street that morning, I thought, you, you're her. And so when I crossed the street, I was going over to meet my character and, and I fell in love with her. Like I she became one of my best friends. She became like a, you know, like a relative to me, like like a like an extra grandmother. But the whole time I was with her, I was writing her in my head. And then when it finally came time, after I mean I've known her now for seven years, but by then uh, after about two years, I thought, well, I better um, I better start working on this play. And I I I told Belvoir about her, and they really loved the idea, and they commissioned it. But meanwhile, I wasn't writing it because I was still living her and I was still kind of finding out about her. But um, and I kept thinking, there's more, there's more. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. But then finally, I thought, well, I've got to start writing it eventually. And so I hadn't spoken to Robin Nevin for those two years. I just had that brief conversation with her where we decided that I would write her a play and then I didn't see her again. And I thought, well, and she happened to be in Melbourne doing a show where which she was... um. It was a solo show, The Year of Magical Thinking, which she was stunning in. And I went to the stage door of the art center and left a card for her saying that I'd seen her performance and she was brilliant. And I said, also, by the way, I um, don't know if you remember this conversation where we talked about me writing a part for you. Well, I've dedicated the past two years of my life to it. And I, I hope you will be interested and let me know if you want to talk about it. And then... Uh, a couple weeks passed, or a week, and I was in Adelaide, and I got this phone message, and it was Robin Nevin saying, she was saying, she said it was very hard to get your phone number. I eventually had to call Stephen Armstrong, and I finally got it, and yes, I'd love to meet up and talk, discuss this play. And I fell on the ground, and I was going, ah, on the ground, and my friend said, what is it, what is it? And I said, Robin Nevin's left me a phone message. And um, yeah, and then we met, and she was just up for it straight away. She, I told her all about Anna, and she said, well, write the play. And so I thought, okay, if Robin Nevin says it's time to write it, I better write it. When did you tell Anna about the play? All along. All, oh, like, she all, knew the whole time. Well, I told her the whole time, but whether or not she knew is another <laughs> thing. I mean, I was always saying, Anna, you know I write about you for the... I know politically incorrect how I speak in her, in her accent. I'd be like, Anna, I write the theater show about you. And she'd say, what you tell them, some rubbish? I go, I tell them everything, Anna, everything. And she'd say, good. But um, I don't think, to be, I mean, I told her all along, but I don't think she actually really 
believed it or knew what I meant until she came to Belvoir and saw it. And <laughs> and then she was like, yeah, that was a pretty surreal experience. Then she knew. But um, I told, yeah, I told her all along, but I don't know how much she really understood. Because she, she's always saying to me, you must do get the job. You know, you got no job. You, I'm like, no, no, Anushka, I work in the theater. I work, and she goes, no, the theater is no job. You, you must do get the waitressing. And, and so I don't think she ever really fully understood that I am a playwright and this is what I do. <laughs> in an interview on the Process podcast, you spoke about a note that you stick on your wall as you sit down to write new work. Just tell the truth, it says. And there's a lot of truth woven into this story, not only because it's a representation of real events and relationships, but also because your characters feel honest. Their words and actions are grounded in truth, even though they might be living in the past or having picnics with ghosts or perpetually immersed in the imagined world of a parallel White House or an online role-playing universe. But this is a tale, tall and true. And so I wonder when you constructed the narrative and the characters of Neighbourhood War, how far did you stretch the truth and when did you know that you had to stop every character sort of starts from a place of of realness like they're all kind of taken a little bit from real life and sometimes they're a mixture of two different people or sometimes they're not quite real but there's maybe a little essence of some real person in them or something and um with the Anna character a lot of her is real or, or taken from real things that she said that I've sort of memorized. But then there are some made up scenes as well. Like oh, there's quite a bit made up actually. Like she never listened to Tammy Wynette's stand by your man or, and she's still alive. <laughs> you know, She doesn't die in the end. And also because the me character has a lot of essences of me, but she's also quite fictionalized too. So Anna's relationship with her is different than my relationship with Anna. I mean, I often yell at her. We, you know, she's not speaking to me at the moment. But we have like a. It's um, I'm. I think I'm a lot more confident than the Catherine character is in the beginning of the play, and so, and also I'm a writer. In all fairness, at the time that I was hanging out with her, I was in like I was in my sort of mid late twenties, or twenty seven, and feeling quite lost. And and when I was with Anna, the world made sense to me. And so I think Catherine has that essence, but kind of times a hundred or something. But I mean, a lot of the events in the play are real. Like, you know, the neighborhood watch meeting is real. Like the dog attacking the little white piccolo dog is real. <laughs> Anna talking through the whole, the whole neighborhood watch meeting. And then I've got a, also, I've got a very good memory for conversation. I can remember, at least I believe that I can remember conversations often word for word or very close to them. A lot of those conversations, like the neighborhood watch meeting and stuff, are word for word. And then I guess when I say just tell the truth, sometimes it means literally just tell what I see to be true. Or it means just tell what feels emotionally true or feels true to the character. And neighborhood watch is a mix of all those things. <laughs> well, let's talk about the characters. What's the most important things that you think we should know about Catherine? I mean, I imagine her to be about 27 years old, sort of at that precipice between... When you're at, you're kind of leaving, well and truly leaving your childhood, you know, at 27. For me, from 27 till 30, I was really confused and lost. And I suddenly, I went from being a young woman who had a lot of direction and knowing what I wanted and to feeling really lost and, and not, and sort of doubting what I was doing with my life and, and, and feeling lonely. And also during that time, I had suddenly this kind of quite unhealthy relationship with food where I was always like, not wanting to eat and like not wanting anyone to know what I was eating or it was all and I'd never been like that before and then 
for that time I was. But then Anna kind of just was like, you know, that just doesn't make sense to her. So it did. So it didn't last. So Catherine kind of has has those has those essences, and then also she's got this boyfriend or you know some someone who's very special to her who's who's killed himself. And I didn't have I didn't have a boyfriend who killed himself, but I'd had a friend I'd lived with a, a few years before that who had killed himself, and I'd always been haunted by that. And I think, and I guess in, in a way, yeah, it sort of became this in the play. It became like a sort of romantic thing. But I think. I think for a lot of people, like if if they know someone who does something like that, they're always kind of feel guilty or or haunted by it and trying to work out like what you know what they did wrong or what. And of course, it's you know it's it's never anything you did. It's always just that unfortunately that person was a lost soul or or made a mistake or something. And I guess in the end, you sort of have to resolve it within yourself. And like for me, it was a much less close relationship or, or big deal in my life as it was to Catherine but so I guess she's like some bits of her are uh, you know quite different to me and then some bits are exaggerated and what well, in some bits of, of her are not really part of my life or might even be like things I've stolen from a friend she's bits of me and bits of other people that I know I've got a lot of ironing to do Catherine says to her roommate Ken in the first scene and as we get to know her we find that she always has a lot of ironing to do an endless rotation of ironing stretching out across the play this fastidiousness with her uncrinkled clothing and haberdashery is like a freshly pressed contrast maybe to the wrinkles from her past which she flattens out Mm -hmm. with scorching metal and bursts of piping hot steam now, compulsive behaviour is serious. It can be quite debilitating for some people, but there's a real humorous bent to her obsessive behaviour. Yeah, isn't there? yeah. And well, I guess at that time, the time when I was writing, I was obsessed with ironing. I would just iron everything in the house. Like t- I would spend all day sometimes ironing sheets, ironing tea towels, ironing underwear, ironing socks. Like I was totally obsessed. Now I don't iron at all. I don't even own an iron. I, t- I take it all and get it ironed. Because I can't have one in the house because I'll go crazy again. But um, does that still mean that you're obsessive? Technically, are you actually getting all of these things ironed by someone else? Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're they're all getting. Yeah, I still want them ironed. It's not like they're wrinkly. They're not wrinkly. I just, I just have just to, to clarify. Stay away from everyone, the iron. they are not wrinkly. Yeah, just like, yeah. Actually, when I I lived with a boyfriend a couple of years ago, and when I moved in with him. I just was. I took all of his clothes and ironed them all. And he like he thought I was crazy, but then at the same time he was quite pleased, you know, wearing these wrinkle-free shirts. A- any girls listening to this, don't iron your boyfriend's clothes. The relationship didn't work out, so it's not like it's a recipe for success. But um, I guess the difference between me and Catherine is when I was doing that crazy ironing, I kind of knew it was funny. Like I like I knew it was. I knew it was nuts. And like I'd tell people about it, and we'd laugh about it. I'd be like. I just can't stop ironing the tea towels. <laughs> and we'd all be laughing, whereas Catherine, I don't know if she knows, if she's as aware of it as I was. It's I guess. a very legitimate reason for her not to engage in life at all, yeah. generally, isn't it? Well, you can get stuck in stuff like that so easily. Like, you can get stuck in kind of obsessive things, and, and, um, and it's a real out from life. So when Catherine tells Ken that she doesn't love him after Anna tells him that she does uh-huh. love him and she also says that he shouldn't have set up a situation where she came to rely on him and just expected that naturally she would fall in love with him too he bites back and he tells her that she's not moving on with her life she protests says that she is but this 
seems reactionary to me when she does that, and I think part of her knows that he's right. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying so, she can't bring herself to do that just yet. She asks him a question instead, and I want to ask that question of you. Why does everyone want the one thing that's impossible, Lally? I don't know. It's a, it, but it's a shame, isn't it? That is that, that's what most people seem to want. <laughs> I think in a way it's so easy to want the thing that's impossible because you never have to worry about if you get it. Because <laughs> right. it's often, I think, if once you get the thing you're dreaming of, well, then you've got to live with it and deal with it and kind of continue on with life. And I think when you're longing for something that isn't possible, it's very easy to avoid reality. I just found it really interesting that she's wanting something that is impossible in a, in a different way to what we would normally think of when someone puts that to us. You know, she's not lusting after or... Um, in love with a boy who isn't interested in her yeah. or, ha- or has a girlfriend or something. She's not dreaming of a faraway trip when she hasn't got the cash. You yeah. know? She's actually trying to go back in time, yeah. really. Yeah, she, yeah. she's trying to, go, to stop time to go back in time. But to, if she does that, then she won't really... Yeah, she's never going to be part of life, really. There's this really funny couple of moments near the beginning of the play where uh, Catherine's mother who obviously sounds like she has a little bit of an obsessive bent to her as well. She sends her all sorts of things that Catherine can't use and doesn't need. Uh So she sends a kettle at the beginning of the play, but Catherine has two already. She sends a food processor, but Catherine can't cook. Whereas Anna understands her immediately, offering advice without being asked and hitting the nail on the head, many nails, actually. And before we get to Anna, I'd like to hear what you think Catherine sees in her when they first meet. I think she sees in her partly an escape from her own day-to-day reality. I think she sees in her... Uh, yeah, I think she uh, catches a glimpse of of hungry World War Two, and catches a glimpse of the magic inside Anna's home. And she so, just that sort of feeling of, oh, you, you know, you. Like, and um, that sort of... When we, we we get sometimes when we meet someone who's really Im- important to our lives, I think she doesn't. I don't think she consciously knows it, and, or even plans for that to happen. But she, I think she sees, senses that th- th- this is her her rescue in a way. Yeah, and there's something really beautiful about it as well because it's not corruptible. She gets offered money by Anna to clean out her birdcage, but she doesn't want money. She wants the stories. She wants to have a relationship with this woman. Actually, she's immediately intrigued by the, the yeah. history. and she's intrigued by Anna's romance stories and her. she's intrigued by her big stories of life and death and the epic because Catherine's from suburban Australia, now-ish, which is, you know, an exciting place in many ways, but it's not World War II in Hungary where people are, you know, being blown to pieces in the street and there are soldiers everywhere and, you know, people are starving. Like, it's... It's a different world. And I guess Catherine, you know, is really intrigued by that world. Well, what are the most important things that we should know about Anna? Anna grew up in war and therefore sees war everywhere. Like, she's stuck in a pattern where her distrust led to her survival. It's made her and it's destroying her all at once. It's kept her alive and it's and it's killing her. And that she's very lonely and she you know she's all alone in the world and partly because of her distrust mainly because of her distrust and she needs a friend in the, her final kind of year of life and she's got a good heart but um 
it's hard to get to her heart. Yeah, she'd never admit that she was lonely, would she? No. Old school Eastern Europeans present a front to the world and it's all about keeping up that appearance and not letting anyone see your suffering. And um, and here it's very different because we don't suffer as much, so we don't have to pretend we're not. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the things she's proudest of is that no matter what, she doesn't break, she doesn't fall, she keeps up like this glamorous appearance. It's like, we mustn't let anyone see our pain, let them see we are crying, you know, we swallow the frog. But I think one of the most important things Anna learns is that sometimes it's better not to swallow the frog and to let someone see into your heart and let let them see how you're feeling. And, and that's actually the only way that trust can kind of happen and, and a and real kind of friendship can be built. There's this red coat that she wears at the end of the play. And, yeah. <laughs> and I can't remember who it is, but someone says how lovely it is. And she said, yes, it's a very special coat. I wore it for my husband's funeral and now for Mamma Mia. Yeah. She's, just, yeah. she's very funny without realizing oh, it. Oh, yeah, always, yeah. I mean, always in real life, you know, too. Right. Like, I'm pretty sure... She said that about that coat. <laughs> she wore it to her husband's funeral and now to Mamma Mia. <laughs> and um, she knows she's funny sometimes. Like, she's lots of fun. But more that was like, this is a special occasion. Right. I, w- I wore this coat to my husband's funeral, one of the biggest days of her life. And now she's wearing this coat the second time to Mamma Mia which means it must be a very big day in her life. Her stories from the past cover a really diverse political and personal spectrum at a time of great change. And these stories are interwoven with truth. I mean, they're based on her stories, her life. But how did you approach depicting such a vast subject matter, real subject matter, within a tightly scripted piece of theatre? It wasn't easy. I mean, when I first wrote the play, there were tons of flashbacks. But we sort of ended up going with um, with the ones we picked because they were, I guess, because they they were in some ways the best. I mean, there's so many others. Like, there's so many other stories of honors that I know so well and I know word for word. And actually, the script when I first wrote it was a lot of monologue by Anna. But sometimes I think with a monologue like that, it can take a little bit of life out between the interaction between the characters. Like, I decided early on that I wanted to try and make it less monologue heavy and more dialogue-y and and, and we spent a long time working on the structure of the script and how everything would work because we didn't want it to be too long or or too... um... Or try and teach everyone the whole story of the Second World War as well. Yeah, so in the end we just had to pick stories that showed Anna really and showed her life. I want to talk about anxiety because there's an undercurrent I think of anxiety that runs throughout the piece. Katrina has cameras all around the outside of her house and in the spare bedroom. They can even see in the dark. And Anna likes the idea of these cameras, but she has Bella, her German shepherd with a touch of Doberman Pinscher, who she calls my daughter, my security camera, and my weapon. Still, this can't stop her from feeling paranoia and anxiety rising up each time Yovanka makes contact. She acting very nicely, says Anna. Hello, Anna. Hello, Anna. But she is a snake. I have known many Yovanka. Then we have Catherine, who suppresses her anxiety with obsessive cleaning and ironing. None of this is virulent, but it's kind of excessive, really, Mm -hmm. isn't it? And the connection I see between all of these forms of anxiety is that each of these women are lonely. And I wonder if you think loneliness and anxiety are connected. Do you know what? It's a good question, and I absolutely do. I think my loneliest times are probably my most anxious times. Because I think when you're 
when you're lonely, it often means that you're not getting to talk things through with someone on a regular basis. And that's when things start to get big in your head. And also you're more nervous home alone. Like I know like when I'm home alone, like, and and I live alone now, you can get very, I mean, I get very frightened and, and these are like elderly women living alone in these big houses, dark backyards. I, I would be scared. I would want security cameras and a big dog and, you know, highly unlikely someone's going to want to go in there and kill them but i would still i would be scared and so i think i think when you're surrounded by people there's less chance for your imagination to grab hold of you because reality's kind of splashing you all the time but when you're on your own you can your imagination can really get carried away and i think and i think with anxiety like little things that say you were to discuss them with someone or mention something to someone straight away when you don't, they kind of build up and build up and become like a sort of mantra or radio jingle in your head. And I do think that, yeah, loneliness can go hand in hand with anxiety. Let's talk about the structure. I want to read a quote taken from the Melbourne Theatre Company's teacher's notes for the play. You said, we're always living in front of the backdrop of history, even if we don't know it. And you were clearly influenced by the historical context in which you set the play because it's bookended by the election of Kevin Rudd's Labour government in November of 2007 and the election of Barack Obama's Democratic government in the United States one year later. Now, both leaders came to power after a long period of conservative rule. And I'd like to hear more about why you chose to have these two significant shifts in the political landscape of nations open and close this play about the lives of a few individuals in a neighbourhood that, as you say in your location notes, could be said in any Australian city. Well, I guess because the the big stuff trickles, that absolutely shapes what happens with the little stuff. Like, I think all of our lives, whether or not we're even aware of what's going on in the news or politics or anything, they're all really affected by the big things that are happening in the world. And I mean, the, and actually, really, literally, the morning I met Anna was the morning after um, the Rudd government had been voted in. And I remember everyone felt really hopeful at the time. Like, it felt like there was a new dawn coming and everyone felt more optimistic than they felt in a long time. And then when Obama got in, that was such a such a huge time. Everyone, everyone was like, I'm sure some people were angry and really disappointed, but everyone I knew were celebrating. And it felt, it felt like the world was celebrating. And so I guess in a way... It was nice to open it with this kind of time of hope, even if that hope didn't necessarily last or whatever, you know, who knows what it translates into in, in living. But um, but to open it with that time of hope and then to to close it with a time of hope too. And, you know, and, and I guess later we kind of, we might go, oh, well, this didn't work out or that didn't work out. But I think if you were old enough at that time or, you know, then you remember that the feeling that was around then. And I guess because in my heart, it's a story of hope. Like, it's a story of these neighbors, these women coming, you know, even though Anna dies, she makes a friend and she's happy when she dies. And so, I and she's not alone when she dies. And through Anna, Catherine's brought back into the world. So in my mind, it is, yeah, it's a story of hope in a way. 
Let's look at the time shifts between present-day Sydney and Anna's life in Hungary. They have a purpose, obviously. Anna's past offers Catherine breadcrumbs, or maybe a slap across the face here and there, that help her through the mist of confusion in her mind. But these memories also remind Anna of her own journey to the here and now. And you've said that both Anna and Catherine go on a hero's journey. So I'd like to know what you think are their key transitions and moments of development along that journey. I guess their moments of development are when they have to make sort of big and painful changes, like when Catherine has to let Martin go, or or, or when Anna realizes she has to become friends with with Yvonka, and also when she kind of realizes she's dying and um and has to accept that. And and um, why is her friendship with Yvonka such a big moment on her hero's journey? I guess because I don't think she's ever had a friend that she's trusted is really her friend, right? And um. And even though, you know, we see in the play, obviously Ivanka really likes her and is making a big effort to be her friend. Anna sees the complete opposite. Where we see offerings of friendship, Anna sees acts of war. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, she just has a different way of seeing it. That must be a huge relief to let go of, I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine it would be, yeah. So you felt like after that had happened, it was okay for her to pass into the next life somehow? Yeah. Like she let go of all of this stuff and she was free? Yeah, she let it go, yeah. Do you think at the end of their respective heroes' journeys that Anna and Catherine have both mastered their inner and outer worlds and found freedom? I think so. As much as you can ever, you know, because then life continues and throws up the next thing. But I think for that particular journey, they've, they've... taking each other to where they need to be for Anna to die and for Catherine to live. And if you could pick one thing for every single audience member to take away or every single reader to take away when they come to Neighbourhood Watch, what would it be? I guess hope. And I guess like, and I guess this sort of curiosity about their neighbours and, and the elderly, I think, and kind of and knowing that every person they pass on the street might have like an epic story that could take them somewhere in their own lives. Well, thank you for sharing this story with us and for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Toby. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.